This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 12 New Testament Ethical Themes Endorse the Law Quote, the presupposition of the New Testament authors is continually and consistently that the Old Testament law is valid today. End quote. The New Testament utilizes a large number of expressions and concepts in communicating moral instruction to God's people, so large that one short study cannot mention them all. The variety of themes found in New Testament ethics helps to drive home to our hearts God's message and demand. It covers our moral obligation from many perspectives, offers us numerous models and motivations for a proper manner of life, and facilitates the production and maintenance of ethical maturity in us. Yet the large variety of New Testament ethical themes does not imply a correspondingly large diversity of ethical systems of conflicting expectations. God is consistent and changes not. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. With him there is no variableness or turning. James chapter 1 verse 17. His word does not equivocate, saying yes from one perspective but no from another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. Matthew chapter 5 verse 37. Therefore his standards of conduct do not contradict each other, approving and disproving of the same things depending upon which theme in New Testament ethics we are considering. The Lord prohibits us from following conflicting authorities, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and requires our behavior in the world to reflect godly sincerity, that is, unmixed attitude and singleness of mind or judgment, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. New Testament ethical instruction thus shows a diversity of expression, but a unity of expectation. This is simply to say that all of the various moral themes in the New Testament are harmonious with each other. This is simply to say that all of the various moral themes in the New Testament are harmonious with each other. As we survey a few of these New Testament themes, it will be significant to note how they consistently assume or explicitly propagate the standard of God's Old Testament law, which, given the unchanging character of God and the consistency of his ethical standards, is not at all surprising. God's law is woven throughout the ethical themes of the New Testament. Kingdom Righteousness The central demand of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is that of a righteousness befitting the kingdom of God. Righteousness and God's kingdom are intimately related. Persecution for the sake of righteousness is rewarded in the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 And the Lord requires a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom at all. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. Just as Moses delivered a divine pronouncement from the mount asserting God's standard of righteousness, so also Jesus speaks from the mount with God's requirement of righteousness, confirming every detail of even the least commandment in the Old Testament. Matthew 5:19. He proclaimed, "Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness." Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. How is such kingdom righteousness to be accomplished? Jesus explained in the Lord's Prayer, When we ask thy kingdom come, we are praying, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 verse 10. The doing of God's will, which Jesus found in the Old Testament law, is crucial to the New Testament theme of kingdom righteousness. 
God is portrayed in the New Testament as a God of righteousness. John chapter 17 verse 25. And the fruit that he brings forth in people is that of righteousness. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9. If you know that he is righteous, you also know that everyone who practices righteousness has been begotten of him. 1 John chapter 2 verse 29. And whosoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. As Paul says, we are not to be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And as examples of unrighteousness, he lists violators of God's law. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. Kingdom righteousness, then, is demanded of all believers. Follow after righteousness can serve for Paul as a short summary of Timothy's moral duty. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 11. But where is the character of this kingdom righteousness to be found for New Testament writers? What does righteousness entail in behavior and attitude? Paul tells Timothy that an all-sufficient instruction in righteousness is found in every scripture of the Old Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, thereby encompassing the law of God found therein. In fact, speaking of the Old Testament law, Paul categorically declares that the commandment is righteous, Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Kingdom righteousness, therefore, cannot be understood as contrary to the righteous commands of the king. In Paul's perspective, it is the doers of the law who shall be accounted righteous. Romans chapter 2 verse 13. Righteousness in the New Testament is portrayed as having absolutely no fellowship with lawlessness. The Greek word for iniquity. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. To love righteousness is precisely to hate all lawlessness. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9. God's law cannot be discarded or despised by those who would practice the righteousness of God's kingdom according to the New Testament understanding of ethics. That entails, as we have seen, every last commandment in every scripture of the Old Testament. Quote, uprightness, end quote, allows no deviation from perfect conformity to God's rule. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 25. The Way of Righteousness In his second epistle, Peter describes New Testament Christianity as the way of righteousness, in chapter 2, verse 21. Quote, the way, end quote, was an early designation for the Christian faith. For example, in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 23, chapter 22, verse 4, and chapter 24, verse 22, probably stemming from Christ's own self-declaration that he was the way, John chapter 14, verse 6. The expression is adapted throughout the New Testament, where we read of the way of salvation, Acts chapter 16, verse 17, the way of God, Matthew chapter 22, verse 16, and Acts chapter 18, verse 26, the way of the Lord, Acts chapter 13, verse 10, the way of peace, Luke chapter 1, verse 79, and Romans chapter 3, verse 17, the way of truth, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, and the right way, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. However, the distinctive terminology of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 is the way of righteousness. And Peter treats the phrase, the holy commandment, as interchangeable with it in this verse. Professing Christians who know the way of righteousness and then turn back from the holy commandment are the apostates. Michael Green says in his commentary here that it is a fair inference from the text that the first stage in their apostasy was the rejection of the category of law. Rejection of God's law is the first step to the rejection of God, for God is a moral being. This was in his 
commentary, the second epistle of Peter and the epistle of Jude, from 1968. The way of righteousness describes the true kingdom of God in the New Testament. Thus, New Testament Christianity cannot be set over against the law of God, opposing its standard, for such opposition would amount to turning away from the holy commandment delivered by our Lord and Savior. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. Christ himself spoke of the way of righteousness in connection with the ministry and message of John the Baptist. Quote, John came unto you in the way of righteousness. End quote. Matthew chapter 21, verse 32. Of course, John was preeminently a righteous preacher along to the era and the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 and verse 13. He proclaimed that the coming of God's kingdom demanded repentance. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. The confession of sin. Chapter 3, verse 6. And bringing about the good fruit worthy of repentance. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. As the last preacher in the era of the law and prophets, and forerunner of the Lord, it must be obvious what the standard of sin, repentance, and good fruit would have been for John and his hearers, the law of God. Confirmation of that is found in the details of his preaching where the requirements of God's law were expounded. Luke chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 and verse 19, Mark chapter 6 verse 18. John came in the way of righteousness, applying God's law. This was only to be expected of the one who fulfilled the awaited coming of Elijah to restore all things. Matthew chapter 11 verse 14 and chapter 17 verses 10 through 13. The angelic message of John's coming birth makes it clear that the ministry of Elijah which John would perform was according to the pattern of Malachi's prophecy. Quote, Remember the law of Moses my servant which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel even statutes and ordinances. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of Jehovah comes. End quote. Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. John's preaching in the way of righteousness was anything but antagonistic to the law of the Lord found in the Old Testament. Likewise, those who belong to the way of righteousness today must recognize the important place which the law of God has in Christian ethics. Of course, whether we consider the righteousness of God's kingdom or the way of righteousness, our intention must be focused on God himself as the model of all righteousness. The faithful, described in Revelation 15, who have been victorious over the beast, are portrayed as singing to the Lord, Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. In verse 3, Those who extol the righteousness of God here are the believers who resisted the beast's attempt to replace God's law with his own. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. And the song which, with which they sing is designated the Song of Moses, the Servant of God, a phrase reflecting Joshua chapter 22, verse 5. Quote, Only take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of Jehovah, commanded you, to love Jehovah your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. End quote. The righteousness of God is expressed in his law. Accordingly, the kingdom righteousness demanded by Christ and the apostles and the way of righteousness encompassing the Christian faith both assume and apply the law of God. Whenever these themes appear in the New Testament ethics, they are expressive of the standard of God's commandments as found throughout the Old Testament. Such was the understanding of the New Testament writers themselves. Holiness and Sainthood A biblical concept closely related to that of righteousness is the concept of holiness. While the former emphasizes a just and upright conformity with a standard of moral perfection, 
the latter lays stress on utter separation from all moral impurity. However, the norm for both is the same in Scripture. An unrighteous man cannot be deemed holy, and an unholy person will not be seen as righteous. Above all, God is the Holy One, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, as applied to Christ, Mark chapter 1, verse 24, John chapter 6, verse 69, Acts chapter 3, verse 14, and Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. When he saves us and draws us to himself, he makes us holy, that is, sanctifies us as well. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. From the beginning God chose us to be saved in believing the truth and in holiness, sanctification, produced by the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. By his own sacrifice and the work of reconciliation accomplished by his death. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 and Colossians chapter 1 verse 22. Christ sanctifies the church, aiming to present it as holy and without blemish before God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. It is God who makes us holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Especially through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Holiness is thus an important ethical theme in the New Testament. Believers are called by God precisely to be holy ones, that is, saints. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Christians in a particular locality or church are customarily designated as God's saints. Acts chapter 9, verse 13 and verse 32. Romans chapter 15, verse 25. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. These holy ones are those for whom the Holy Spirit makes intercession. Romans chapter 8, verse 27. To whom God makes known his mysteries. Colossians chapter 1 verse 26, and for whom we are to show acts of love, Colossians chapter 1 verse 4, Romans chapter 12 verse 13, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10, and 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 10. They have been chosen, redeemed, and called to be sanctified, which is to say set apart, consecrated to God's service, or holy before him. The inclusion of the Gentiles in God's redemptive kingdom means that they have become fellow citizens with the saints. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 in the commonwealth of Israel. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. Accordingly, the church is made up of those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy ones or saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. Christians are the holy brothers. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. A holy temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17 and Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21. Purged vessels of honor made holy for the master's use and ready for every good work 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 any conception of new testament ethics which skirts holiness or encourages anything contrary to it is in diametric opposition to the text of god's word holiness of life is an inescapable requirement for god's people they must present their bodies as holy sacrifices romans chapter 12 verse 1 and their members as servants of righteousness unto sanctification or holiness. Romans chapter 6 verse 19. God has called them to holiness rather than uncleanness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 7. And freed them from sin so that they might produce the fruit of holiness. Romans chapter 6 verse 22. As believers we must establish our hearts unblameable in holiness before God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 13. 
and see to it that our behavior in the world is in holiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Everywhere we turn in the New Testament, the ethical theme of holiness keeps reappearing. Its demand is constant. Paul's stirring exhortation summarizes this demand well. Quote, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. End quote. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. What is the character of this holiness which the New Testament takes as a pervasive moral theme? By what standard is holiness measured, and where is concrete guidance and holiness found? The fact that Christians are to be holy is so often stated in the New Testament that we must certainly assume that the norm or criterion of holiness was already well known. Little needs to be said to explain to New Testament readers what this holiness requires. The suggestion is unavoidable that the Old Testament standards of morality already sufficiently defined the holiness which God sought in his people. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 10 indicates that God chastens us so that we may become partakers of his holiness, and thus New Testament holiness is nothing less than a reflection of God's character on a creaturely level. How does one who is a sinner in thought, word, and deed come to know what God's holiness requires of him? Peter makes it clear what is implicit in the pervasive New Testament theme of holiness when he writes, quote, Even as he who called you is holy, be yourselves also holy in all matter of living, because it stands written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. End quote. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Here Peter quotes the Old Testament law from such places as Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, and chapter 20, verse 7, where it is evident that God's people would be sanctified and be holy by following all the statutes of God's revealed law. Christ was surely including the Old Testament in his reference when he prayed that his people would be sanctified by his word of truth. John chapter 17, verse 17. Indeed, Paul explicitly says that the Old Testament law is our standard of holiness today, even as it was for the saints of Israel. Quote, so then the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and righteous, and good. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. In the book of Revelation, John leaves no doubt about the place of God's law in the holiness of God's people. He defines the saints, holy ones, precisely as the ones keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 17. In the moral theology of Jesus, Peter, Paul, and John, the concept of holiness explicitly conforms to the law of God found in the Old Testament word of truth. We therefore see again that the New Testament ethics cannot be pitted against God's law without doing damage to a central theme of the New Testament scriptures. Separation from the World Another ethical theme in the New Testament, one which is closely allied with that of holiness, i.e. separation unto God and away from defilement, is the theme of separation from the world. Of course, this does not denote a desire to withdraw from the affairs of life or the community of men. Christ made this abundantly clear in praying for us in this fashion, quote, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from evil or the evil one. John chapter 17 verse 15. When the New Testament speaks of separation from the world, the term world is used for the ethical condition of sinful rebellion against God. The course of this world is satanic and makes one a disobedient child of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, says James in James chapter 4, 4. 
and therefore true religion is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James chapter 1 verse 27. The world is understood as the locus of corruption and defilement. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 and chapter 2 verse 20. John puts it dramatically and clearly when he says, The whole world lies in the evil one. 1 John chapter 5 verse 19. Even as his gospel continuously shows that the world is understood as the domain of disobedience, disbelief, and ethical darkness. John chapter 1 verse 29, chapter 3 verse 17, and verse 19, John chapter 4 verse 42, chapter 6 verse 33, and verse 51, John chapter 8 verse 12, John chapter 9 verse 5, chapter 12 verse 46, and 47, and chapter 16, verse 8. John says elsewhere that all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the vainglory of life. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 exhorts us to follow after the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord, indicating that those who are acceptable to God must be set apart sanctified unto him, and separated from the sinful pollution of the world. This entails cleansing from defilement, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, leading a spotless life, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, language reminiscent of the purity and sacrificial laws of the Old Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 summarizes the New Testament theme of separation from the world. Quote, Let everyone that names the name of the Lord depart from unrighteousness. End quote. How is this to be done? What is the nature of such separation from unrighteousness and defilement? By what standard does the New Testament Christian separate himself from the world? James instructs us that the Word of God, which for James surely included the Old Testament scriptures of his day, is the key to this ethical separation. Quote, Putting away all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, and not hearers only, deluding your own selves. End quote. From James chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. We can put away worldly vice and corruption by doing what is stipulated in the word of God, including the stipulations of the Old Testament and its law. Quote, he that looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues, not being a hearer who forgets it, but a doer that practices it, this man shall be blessed in his doing. End quote. James chapter 1 verse 25. Paul's theology agrees with this. Quote, For the grace of God has appeared to all men bringing salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. End quote looking for the appearance of Christ who, quote, redeemed us from every lawless deed, end quote. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Salvation provided by Christ enables us, by avoiding lawless behavior, to deny the unethical direction of worldliness. In his commentary on this passage, Calvin wrote, quote, The revelation of God's grace necessarily brings with it exhortations to a godly life. In God's law, there is complete perfection to which nothing else can ever be added. End quote. <clears throat> Paul exhorts us to have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. And it is evident that for Paul, the Old Testament law directed God's people as to how they could avoid such evil fellowship. 
Citing the law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, Paul said, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Further citing the Old Testament regarding the laws of holiness by which Israel was separated from the Gentile nations, Paul goes on to write, quote, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. An example of these Old Testament laws which separated Israel from the world is found in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, where we see that the observation of such laws, for example, distinguishing unclean from clean meats, was but symbolic of separation from worldly customs. All meats are now deemed clean, Mark chapter 7, verse 9, Acts chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Yet God's people are still obligated to separate themselves from worldliness, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and union with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. How was holy separation accomplished according to Leviticus 20? You shall therefore keep my statutes and all mine ordinances and do them, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. The good, well-pleasing, and perfect will of God. A passage expressing the ethical themes of holiness and separation from the world is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul there says, quote, Therefore I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, age, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, the good, and well-pleasing and perfect, end quote. Going beyond the themes of holiness and separation, Paul speaks of the good, well-pleasing, and perfect will of God. These same concepts are combined in the benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews. Quote, now the God of peace make you perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. End quote. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Perhaps the most fundamental ethical concept in either the Old or New Testament is that of the will of God. All ethical decisions and moral attitudes of God's people must be in accord with the will of the Lord, by which he prescribes what is good or well-pleasing or perfect in his sight. Anything conflicting with that will is immoral and displeasing to God quite naturally. Jesus said that his meat was to do the will of the Father who sent him, John chapter 4, verse 34, and that those who did the will of the Heavenly Father were his brother and sister and mother, Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. We manifest whose children we are by our righteous behavior or lack of the same, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Christ taught his disciples to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Doing God's will is not merely a matter of words, but concrete acts of obedience. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31. The will of God must be done from the heart. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore, not those who cry, Lord, Lord, but only those who do the will of the Father in heaven will enter into the kingdom. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Those who know the Lord's will and fail to do it will be beaten with many stripes. Luke chapter 12, verse 47. On the other hand, if a man does the will of God, he will be able to discern the doctrine which comes from God, 
John chapter 7, verse 17, and his prayers will be heard. John chapter 9, verse 31, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. While the world and its lusts pass away, he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. Consequently, Paul can encapsulate New Testament ethics in one stroke, saying, Be not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Indeed, we are to aim to stand perfect, fully assured in all the will of God. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. The Source of Man's Standards Where do we learn, understand, and become assured of God's will? The New Testament offers little by way of an explicit answer to such a question. We learn that the will of God stands over against the lusts of men. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. And in a very few cases, we are told what the will of God specifically requires. For example, abstaining from fornication and giving thanks in all things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and chapter 5, verse 18. However, there is no detailed discussion of the requirements of God's will, and concrete guidance in God's will as such is not systematically explored. Why not? Especially since the will of God is such a crucial ethical theme, we might have expected differently. The answer lies in recognizing that the common conviction of the inspired New Testament writers is that the will of God has already been given a specific and sufficient explication in the Old Testament. It is simply assumed that one can speak of the will of God without explanation because it is obvious that God's will traces back to the revelation of His will in the law previously committed to Scripture. Accordingly, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14 can be quoted about David, quote, A man after my heart, who will do all my will, end quote, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And it is expected that the reader will recall that in the Old Testament setting of this statement, David is contrasted with Saul precisely with respect to the keeping of God's commands. Paul convicts those who glory in God and claim to know his will, and yet transgress the law thereby dishonoring God. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, and verse 23. And John would add, quote, And hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. End quote. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In the New Testament, God's will is assumed to be found in his law and commandments. The Good the good, goodness, or good works is also a key theme in New Testament ethics. John says, quote, Beloved, imitate not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that does good is of God. He that does evil has not seen God. End quote. 3 John, verse 11. Paul declares, quote, Faithful is the saying, and concerning these things I desire that you affirm confidently, to the end, that they who have believed God may be careful to maintain good works, end quote. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Although guarding diligently the truth that salvation is by grace through faith, Paul nevertheless taught that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before prepared that we should walk in them, end quote. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. By what standard, then, do we judge what is ethically good? Again, the New Testament is here resting on the revelation of God's law for its understanding of the ethical theme of the good. When asked what good things should be done to inherit eternal life, Jesus responded, quote, If you would enter into life, keep the commandments, end quote. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. 
and he makes it crystal clear that he's referring to the Old Testament law in verses 18 and 19. Likewise, Paul could state without qualification that, quote, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I consent unto the law that it is good, end quote. Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and verse 16. Elsewhere, he expresses the common outlook of the Christian faith, quote, we know that the law is good, end quote. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Pleasing God. Another concern of New Testament ethics is to realize what is well-pleasing unto God. Paul says, quote, We make it our aim to be well-pleasing unto him, end quote, because all will appear before his judgment seat to receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Elsewhere, Paul identifies the kingdom of God with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Quote, For he that herein serves Christ is well-pleasing to God, end quote. Romans chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. Those who have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but who walk rather as children of light, the fruit of which is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, are actually proving what is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Thus, it is basic to New Testament morality that our actions and attitudes should be well-pleasing in the sight of God, but how can we make them so? How does anyone know what pleases God or not? It is unusual for Paul to give a specific or concrete instance. For example, Philippians chapter 4 verse 18. For this broad concept. However, at one point when he does so, it is not difficult to see what his ethical standard was. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 20, Paul instructs children to obey their parents, quote, For this is well-pleasing in the Lord, end quote. The commandment of the law, therefore, can serve and did serve as detailing what is well-pleasing to God, even in the New Testament morality. Perfection Perfection is another moral theme of the New Testament which deserves our attention. Paul would have believers stand perfect and fully assured in all of the will of God. Colossians chapter 4 verse 12 John discourses against fear because it is inconsistent with being made perfect in love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. And for John, love is tested by adherence to God's commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. James teaches that steadfastness through trials will have its perfect work, so that we are lacking in nothing. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And he sees every perfect gift, in contrast to sin, as coming from God above. James chapter 1, verse 17. With an insight into the special power of sins of the tongue, James tells us that if any man does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. In chapter 3, verse 2. Studying perfection as a moral concept in the New Testament, we once again are taken back to the standard of God's law. Christ taught that our perfection must be modeled after the Heavenly Father. Quote, Therefore you shall be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. End quote. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Significantly, this exhortation follows and summarizes a discourse on the full measure of the Old Testament law's demands, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. When Christ was later approached by one who presumed to be obedient to the law, Christ taught him that to be perfect, he would need to renounce every sin against God's commandments and every hindrance to complete obedience to them, Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Accordingly, we learn that God's law is our standard of moral perfection today. 
James instructs believers that the man who is blessed of God is the one who is a doer of the word, having looked into the perfect law. James chapter 1 verse 25. Summary. We may return now to Romans chapter 12 verse 2, where Paul's ethical guidance to the New Testament believer is to follow the will of God, that which is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. We have seen that the New Testament consistently assumes as common knowledge and explicitly applies the truth that the commandments of God's law in the Old Testament are a sufficient and valid standard of God's will, of the good, of the well-pleasing to the Lord, and of perfection. Whenever these themes appear in the New Testament scriptures, the authority of God's law is repeatedly being applied. Our obligation to that law is reinforced many times over when Paul summarizes the ethical standard for New Testament morality as, quote, the good, well-pleasing, and perfect will of God, end quote. God himself is to receive the glory for bringing our lives into conformity with this unchallengeable norm for Christian conduct. He is the one who, through the ministry of his Son, makes us, quote, perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, end quote. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Every attempt to reject the law of God in the New Testament era meets with embarrassment before the text of the New Testament itself. The righteousness of God's kingdom, the way of righteousness, holiness, and sainthood, our separation from the world, and the good, well-pleasing, perfect will of God, all require that our behavior conform to the standard of God's commandments as revealed once and for all in the Old Testament. This standard is woven implicitly throughout New Testament ethical teaching. Spiritual Freedom Further important ethical themes in the New Testament would include freedom in the Holy Spirit, love, the fruit of the Spirit, and the Golden Rule. Jesus declared, quote, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, end quote, John chapter 8, verse 34, and only the Son of God can truly set us free from that bondage, John chapter 8, verse 36. He does this by applying the redemption which he has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, applying redemption through the Holy Spirit, who frees us from the bondage of sin and death, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This spiritual freedom does not give us the prerogative to live or behave in just any way we please. Spiritual freedom is not the occasion of moral arbitrariness. Paul says, quote, Being made free from sin now and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto sanctification. End quote. Romans chapter 6 verse 22. The Holy Spirit does not give us the freedom to sin, that is, the freedom to transgress God's law. Rather, the Spirit gives us the freedom to be the slaves of Christ and produce holy behavior. The regenerate man is happy and willing to serve the law of God. Romans chapter 7 verse 25. The very bondage from which the Spirit releases us is described by Paul as precisely the sinful nature's inability to be subject to the law of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7. Obviously, freedom from this inability must now mean being subject to the law of God. This freedom does not turn the grace of God into licentiousness, Jude 4, but inclines the heart of those once enslaved to sin to the spirit-given law, Romans chapter 7 verse 14. The ordinance of the law is to be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, Romans chapter 8 verse 4. 
Therefore, the Bible makes it quite clear that our spiritual freedom is not liberty from God's law, but liberty in God's law. James calls the commandments of God, quote, the perfect law of liberty, end quote, in James chapter 2, verse 25, thereby combining two descriptions of the law given by the psalmist, quote, the law of the Lord is perfect, in Psalm 19, verse 7, and quote, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts, end quote, Psalm 119, verse 45. Genuine freedom is not found in flight from God's commands, but in the power to keep them. God's Spirit frees us from the condemnation and death which the law brings to sinners, and the Spirit breaks the hold of sin in our lives. However, the freedom produced by the Spirit never leads us away from fulfilling God's law. Quote, For you, brethren, were called for freedom. Only use not your freedom for an occasion to the flesh, but through love be servants one to another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. End quote. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. When Paul teaches that, quote, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, end quote, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it is taught in the context of the Spirit's new covenant ministry of writing God's law upon the believer's heart and thereby enabling obedience to that law. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, and Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 20. Consequently, the ethical concept of spiritual freedom in the New Testament is anything but indifferent to the law of God. The Spirit frees us from law-breaking for the purpose of law-keeping. Love One of the most conspicuous ethical themes in the New Testament is that of love. Indeed, the New Testament is a story about love, God's love for sinners, John chapter 3, verse 16, and their subsequent love for him and others, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. One of the most sustained ethical essays in New Testament literature is, in fact, a discourse on the necessity, supremacy, and characteristics of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is at the heart both of the gospel and of Christian behavior, 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Few who are knowledgeable of the New Testament writings will deny that love summarizes in one word the Christian ethic. It is noteworthy that the New Testament writers demonstrate the ethical authority of love by reference to the Old Testament law. Why is love so important? What gives love its ethical preeminence? Why must the dictates of love be respected? What makes love such an authoritative standard? Precisely that it communicates the substance of the law's demands— in summarizing our moral duty in love, Christ actually quoted the love commands from the Old Testament case law, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. He said that love to God and neighbor were crucial because, quote, on these two commands hang the whole law and prophets, end quote, Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. Love is a moral necessity for Paul precisely because it fulfills the law. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, and Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. Love for your neighbor means that you do not commit adultery with his wife, steal his car, or slander him behind his back, just as the law requires. Likewise, James considers love the fulfillment of the royal law, in James chapter 2, verse 8. And John specifically writes, quote, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, end quote. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3.
The assumption of the New Testament writers and the development of their thought is that God's law is morally authoritative because love expresses and follows that law. Love, too, is a fitting standard of moral guidance. The foundational authority of love cannot be isolated from the law of God. The fruit of the Spirit and the golden rule. The same can be said for other New Testament summaries of moral duty. A prominent pattern of godly living is set forth by Paul in the list of the, quote, fruit of the Spirit, end quote, which Paul sets over against the fruit of the sinful nature, or flesh, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16-24. through 24. The attitudes or character traits mentioned by Paul as the outcome of the Spirit's work in believer's life, love, joy, peace, are a model for Christian morality. Yet Paul makes it clear that the ethical authority of these traits rests on the underlying authority of God's law. Having listed the Spirit's fruit, Paul explains why these traits are so important in Christian ethics. Quote, Against such there is no law. End quote. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 23. In the same way we can observe that the popular and pervasive summary of New Testament living, known as the Golden Rule, or whatever you would have men do to you, do even so unto them, is presented as morally authoritative by Christ just because, quote, this is the law and the prophets, end quote. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. The golden rule communicates the essential demand of the law of the Old Testament, and as such it is a standard of ethics which we must respect. Thus we observe that the most common summaries of New Testament morality, whether love, the fruit of the Spirit, or the golden rule, derive their importance and binding character from the law of God which they express. The presupposition of the New Testament authors is continually and consistently that the Old Testament law is valid today. Conclusion Any attempt to speak of New Testament ethics apart from kingdom righteousness, or the holiness of Christ's saints and their separation from the world, or the good, well-pleasing, perfect will of God, or the stature of Christ, or resurrection life, or spiritual freedom, or love, or the fruit of the Spirit, or the golden rule, is bound to be inadequate. And at any attempt to understand these concepts apart from the Old Testament law is bound to be inaccurate. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.